or do other things if I start noticing people nodding off. I won't get offended. I understand how it is. I've been there too. Uh, but I would suggest, I think, one way to pay attention during this talk, because it's a little difficult with our crowd uh, to craft a message that speaks well to everyone, because we have people at the age of 12, and we have people at the age of 35, and so your understanding levels are very different. Uh, yesterday, I tried to aim my message a little bit lower, a little bit simpler, when we were talking about what evangelism is. Today's uh, talk is going to be a little bit more complicated, so it might be a little bit harder to follow. So I think one way you can stay engaged is by trying to like outline the points uh, on the back of one of your sheets and your handouts. Uh, so with all that said, I'd, I'd like us to get started by doing something called the Jesus Prayer. Have, it, have any of you guys heard of the Jesus Prayer? It's basically the saying, I taught Jeremy this last year. So where's Jeremy? Bro, you should have raised your hand. But this is what you're supposed to do. You close your eyes, you breathe in through your nose, you hold your breath, and you breathe out through your mouth. But while you're doing it, you're in your mind repeating these words. When you breathe in through your nose, you say, Lord Jesus Christ, then you hold your breath, Son of God, and then you breathe out through your mouth, have mercy on me, a sinner. And you do this five times. This is an old prayer from the Egyptian desert fathers in the fourth century. And it's something I do when I need to focus, even like when I'm at work, when I need to focus, I do the Jesus prayer. So I'm going to ask us to do it five times. The first time, we'll all do it together and I'll, I'll talk over you the prayer, okay? And then the next four times, you can do it on your own. So everyone close your eyes. It's going to hopefully help us focus. Breathe in through your nose. Lord Jesus Christ, hold the breath. Son of God, breathe out through your mouth. Have mercy on me. A sinner. Now try that four more times on your own. Okay. All right. So today, right now, is going to be my last speaking session with you guys. Later on tonight, after recreation time, after dinner, we have the praise night, and then we'll have our last core group sessions, uh, and then we'll have the campfire stuff. Uh, but this is the last time that I'm going to be kind of talking at you. And so I want to start off by summarizing everything we've talked about so far. Last night, I talked about what evangelism is. So here, who here can remember? What is evangelism? All right, Aaron. So you, uh, you mentioned it would have different meanings in evangelism, meaning like you would be important in between evangelism. Yeah, spreading the good message, spreading the good news. That's what evangelism is. And we talked about how news is different from an opinion, and it's different from advice because it's an account of something that's actually happened. You guys remember that? Nod your head, show me you're still with me. Even if you didn't hear what I just said, nod your head so I feel better. Okay. And central to the idea of sharing the good news is the idea of being a witness, right? It's testifying to people what God has done in your life. 
And so even if you're not an expert on every single detail in the Bible, you are an expert in your own life, right? You are an expert on the way that God has acted in your life. And so you can bear testimony about that at the very least. Now, you can go further from there and you should go further from there. But at the end of the day, that is the thing you're most responsible for, to be a witness to how God has acted in your life. So this morning with our Bible study, we looked together at the example of Paul evangelizing in Athens, right? And we spent a lot of time on that. Uh, Paul was speaking to a Greek culture that desired wisdom. But just like our culture today, there's no consensus on the way to wisdom. And so the Greeks were hopelessly confused and lost, chasing after many different kinds of gods, even the unknown God. And Paul used their worship of the unknown God as an entry point for evangelism to show them the way to the true wisdom, which is Jesus Christ. And the, and the idea that history is not a wheel. History is not just an unending cycle of things that repeat. But history is a line headed towards a destination to a day where the man God has appointed, Jesus Christ, is going to judge all things. So that's how Paul was able to evangelize to Athens. He affirms their desire for wisdom and knowledge, but then he challenges them and says that in actuality, they're being ignorant. Because time is not a wheel, time is a line headed towards a judgment day, a destination and goal. And that destination is the new creation, which will be ruled over by God's Messiah. So what I wanted you to see from that is the pattern Paul uses when he's evangelizing to a culture. He identifies the longing of the culture. He affirms that longing is fundamentally good, but he shows them that the way they're pursuing their longing is leading them to a dead end. And then he shows us how Jesus actually fulfills the longing. This afternoon, we're going to talk uh, a little bit more practically on how we can evangelize to our culture, to North American culture. And in order to do that, you have to understand our culture. You have to understand America, the United States of America, because I'm talking about our American neighbors, our American coworkers from all their different races and backgrounds. That's the culture we have to evangelize to. When you look historically, evangelism in this country has gone through a lot of different phases. And you guys might recognize this as I'm talking. So one phase was the Billy Graham phase. You guys remember Billy Graham, right? He's a famous evangelist from America. And the Billy Graham phase was he would show up at a city with these big meetings called crusades, right? And he would invite everyone in the city to come hear him speak. And there would be a band, and then he would give a sermon, and everyone would show up, and there would be mass conversions. So that was one phase, the Billy Graham phase, the crusade phase of evangelism. Then after that, in the 1960s and 1970s, there was what was called the evangelism training phase. There was a British evangelist. His name was John Stott. He was really famous for this. He was kind of the Billy Graham of Britain. And his strategy for evangelizing is he would find a group of people in his, in his church who would, he would train to be like super evangelists. And he would give them tracts and he would give them Bibles and they would go out in the street and they would start engaging people in conversation, kind of like street evangelism. So that was a different phase of evangelism. And then now, in a lot of churches in America, we're in what's called the class phase. A church will host a series of classes at the church, and people will invite their friends to come hear the classes. If you guys have ever heard of, like, the Alpha Course, that's one example of, like, the class phase of evangelism. All these different ways, uh, all these different methods for evangelism, they're good. They're useful. They, they were good for their time, and I, I see and I recognize that they can be good even now. 
But here's the problem. All of those older ways of evangelism assumed a basically Christian culture in the United States. It assumed that the people in the United States basically either grew up in the church or were surrounded by other Christians so that they thought that religion was basically a good thing, but they had just never personally got around to committing to religion. They had just, they'd grown up with like Christianity kind of in the air, in the background, but they themselves had never made a commitment to it. That's how a lot of people back in those days grew up in the United States. But then something happens in their life, they get married, they have a child, they go through some suffering, and that prompts them to give Christianity a second look. And someone invites them to a praise night, there's a great speaker, and they decide, you know what, I'm going to give Christianity a shot, I'm going to commit my life to Jesus Christ. But things have changed now, and I don't think all of the churches in the United States, whether they're Indian churches or non-Indian churches, have recognized the change. These other forms of evangelism can work if you grew up in the church and left, or if you grew up with some sort of Christian cultural background. But today's world in the United States is increasingly pluralist and post-Christian. So I know those are fancy words. Let me break them down for you. What is pluralism? Pluralism means that there is no consensus, there's no agreement on questions of meaning and ultimate truth. Many different points of view on the purpose of life coexist. They're swirling around in society. And this leads to diversity of thought, which can lead to creativity, and that's a good thing. But it also leads to confusion and tension among the people. Post-Christian means a culture that used to be Christian, uh, where Christianity used to be the dominant worldview, but the culture has now left Christianity behind. That's what post-Christian means. Okay, so the culture may keep some things it thinks are good from Christianity, like human rights, the idea that all people are created equal. Uh, That's not a pagan idea. That's a Christian idea that comes from uh, the fact that all people are created in the image of God. So the culture likes that idea. Post-Christian culture likes that idea, but it doesn't like other ideas from Christianity. It doesn't like ideas on uh, how you should live your sexual life, for example. It sees those ideas as backwards and primitive. Those are the things that need to be discarded. So why do I say that today's world is increasingly pluralist and post-Christian? When you look at the data, like when you look at the survey data of millennials, so millennials are people born between the years 1980 and 2000. I was born in 1989, so that's my generation. When you look at the data about the millennial generation, they are the least religious generation in the United States ever. They're the least likely to be affiliated with any kind of church. If they go to a church, they go twice a year, Christmas and Easter. uh, And they are more likely to pick and choose what they believe from the swirl of different beliefs that are out there. So maybe I believe in a heaven, but I also believe in reincarnation. It's like religion is like a cafeteria where they're picking and choosing from different things. That's what happens in a pluralist society. That's my generation. Those are the people that I'm friends with, that I go to work with. You guys understand? You're following me? But many of you are here are not even millennials like me. You're Generation Z. How many of you guys were born after the year 2000? Yeah, uh, like half the room. You were born after the year 2000. So you're Generation Z. And surveys tell us that Generation Z is the most racially diverse, the most gender fluid, and the most religiously non-observant 
uh, generation in the United States ever, even more religiously non-observant than the millennials. And here's why this matters for you. If we want our, one of the marks of our church to be evangelism in North America, if we want to be missionaries to this culture, then we need to know this culture. Isn't that what we were talking about early on? Like Paul understood Greek culture. He understood what was going on in their minds. And so if we want to be evangelists to this culture, we have to be prepared for this culture. We have to be prepared for this reality. We can't assume the old world of cultural Christianity. We have to start preparing for the pluralist and post-Christian future now. And how can we do that? I think we can get our bearings if we look at the example of the early New Testament church. Because the early church in the time of Paul, of Paul and the apostles lived in a world that in many ways was similar to our own world. There was, just like us, there was no consensus on truth. There was a pluralist world where there were many different ideas swirling around. And people were hostile to Christianity. And it hasn't gotten to that point here yet, but it's getting a little bit more hostile to Christianity. You can kind of sense it in our culture today. Back then, during the time of the early church, if people found out you were a Christian during the time of Paul or preaching about Christianity during the time of the Roman Empire, you could be beaten. You could be stoned. You could be thrown in jail. Right. Paul was fleeing different cities because he was his life was under threat. So the early church didn't grow by inviting people to hear a great speaker or with evangelism training or classes. And yet Christianity spread like wildfire in the Roman Empire. How? How did Christianity grow? The reason Christianity spread in the days of the Roman Empire is because the Christian community itself had such a combination of beauty, goodness, truth, and power that it drew in non-Christians. It attracted non-Christians to the community, like the way a magnet attracts iron filings. Have you guys ever seen uh, iron filings alongside a magnet? If you put a magnet in the middle of iron filings, they all just zoop, all come right next to the magnet. That's the way the Christian community as a whole was to non-Christians. So what specifically drew in non-Christians to the other Christians? And that's what I want us to look at so that we can learn, start to learn to do the same thing. I think this is something that's going to take us a few years to really get our heads around. But we can at least start to have that conversation, how to be an evangelical community. First thing is that the early Christians were ambassadors for Christ. They were ambassadors for Christ. And the second thing is, like Paul in Athens, they learned how to challenge the idols of their culture. So in the same way, we need to learn how to be ambassadors for Christ. And we need to learn how to challenge the idols of our culture. And just references here for you so that you don't think I'm just making all this stuff up. There are two main books that I've been looking at as I was preparing for this. Uh, the Patient Ferment of the Early Church by Alan Creeder and The Rise of Early Christianity by Rodney Stark. Those are two of the main books I was looking at for this. So first, Ambassadors for Christ. The early Christians realized that they were responsible to represent to everyone they came across who Jesus Christ is. And so they lived their lives in a totally different way. They weren't just witnesses. They were also ambassadors for Jesus. So think about it this way. One of the reasons why it might sometimes be awkward for you when you talk to your friends about Christianity is because when they talk to you, they don't see you being that different from them. 
So they don't see what difference Christianity makes in your life. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, if you're living the exact same kind of basically middle class, basically chasing the American dream, basically, you know, getting the most uh, material wealth and education and enjoying life, that kind of lifestyle that they are, what would attract them to Christianity? There's nothing different about your life, right? Just think about what it means to be an ambassador. Let's say uh, you're the ambassador from India to America, right? You're supposed to represent the ways of India to the United States. Everything you do, everything you talk about, the way you dress, what you eat, you, you know it's not just about you and your life. You're representing an entire nation to another nation. You're a representative, you're an ambassador. And the early Christians had that same understanding. They knew that in everything they do, in, in the way that they live their lives, they have to represent their savior to the Roman world back then. That's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now, let's think about this some more. To be an ambassador means that you're not just like everyone else around you. You're from somewhere else. You're from another country. And the same is true of us today. To be ambassadors for Christ means that we need to be a gospel people, a good news people. So what does that mean? That means we need to be a people who know what the good news is. And we need to be a people who are transformed by the good news. So to be an ambassador for Christ, we need to know what the good news story is, and we need to be a people whose lives actually show that we're transformed by that good news. Otherwise, there's not going to be anything about us that attracts people to Christianity. Do you guys follow me so far? All right, so we spent some time last night going over what the good news is. But in your folders, stapled to the uh, inductive Bible study, so if you get the inductive Bible study sheet, the last page is something, I should have put a title on it, I didn't. It's called The Biblical Story of God. You can take that out now and, and give it a look. It's basically my summary of what the gospel is. And, uh, you know, when I was talking to people during lunch, they were sharing with me that one of the reasons why they don't evangelize is because they don't know how to even summarize the gospel. We were talking, uh, William Hutchins was talking about this a little bit before at the inductive stu- study too. We don't know how to summarize the gospel. So this sheet, I hope you look at it. If you want, you can memorize it. It's an easy way for you to learn what the gospel is and share it. So I'm going to read over it to you right now. There is a good God who created a good creation with human beings as his images. The world was taken prisoner by the power of sin. But God still loved creation and humankind and wanted to rescue them from sin. So he called a man named Abraham, and from Abraham he raised up a nation named Israel, and from Israel he raised up a savior named Jesus, who is God the Son in human flesh. Jesus lived the life we should have lived, died a saving death for us, and three days later rose again in victory over sin and death. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. Now he has called forth followers from every nation and given them his own spirit to be his witnesses about his gospel and to partner with him in restoring the world. 
One day Jesus will come back to wipe away all traces of evil, suffering, and death. And he will unite heaven and earth into a new creation where we will reign with him. So that is the gospel story in a nutshell. That's the biblical story of God. When you look at that handout, though, you see that there are actually six parts to this story. There are six parts to this story. And if you want, you can write this in over your handout. All right. I think that would be helpful. What are the six parts? The six parts are creation, fall, Israel, Jesus, church, and new creation. And I'll tell you what, what part goes where. So first, there's creation. A good God created a good world with human beings bearing his image. This is not an indifferent God. This is not an evil God. This is a loving God who created a good world, a world he was pleased with. Second, there's the fall. The world was taken prisoner by sin. When we look at the evils in this world, the injustice in this world, we know that these things are not what God intends. These are things that God is opposed to. He's opposed to discrimination according to any kind of discrimination, gender discrimination, racist discrimination, caste discrimination, discrimination among classes, all kind of discrimination he's against. Those are all consequences of the fall. They're consequences of sin. Third, there's Israel. God starts his salvation plan by calling Abraham. And from Abraham, he brings forth a nation called Israel to be his people. Fourth, there is Christ. The purpose of Israel is to produce the Messiah, Jesus Christ, to be our savior, to be the world's savior, to defeat sin and death at the cross. Fifth, there is the church. Things don't just end at the cross. Jesus Christ rose again from the dead and he ascended to heaven and he has called forth the church to be his body, his continuing presence in this world. And we are the church. We're united to Jesus's body. Jesus's followers from every nation are given Jesus's spirit. Whether we're from Africa or India or China or Europe, we're all members of his church given his spirit and we're given a job to do. Our job, the purpose of our lives is to witness to the world about this good news that evil has been defeated and to partner with Jesus in fighting against the evil and the injustice that is still in this world. That's the purpose of our lives. It's not the American dream. The purpose of our lives is not for us to accumulate as much wealth as we can so we can buy the biggest house we can in the suburbs. That's not the purpose of our lives. The purpose of our lives is to live out this good news as witnesses. You guys tracking with me? Sixth, finally, there is new creation. The final goal of all creation is to be united under Jesus as a new heavens and new earth. In Revelation chapter 21, John has a vision of the new Jerusalem coming down upon the earth. That's the final goal of all creation. There's going to be no more death or destruction or evil, and we will reign with God forever. And that's a great mystery. We don't know what it means to reign with God forever. Right? Paul talks about judging angels. What does that mean? I have no idea, but it sounds amazing. That's our destiny. So six parts to the gospel story. Creation, fall, Israel, Christ, church, new creation. All right? This is the gospel that you must believe if you want to be an ambassador for Christ. But you not only need to believe this story is true, your life needs to be affected 
Your life needs to be transformed by this story. What do I mean? Here's an example. Maybe it's a little bit of a silly example, but it's the one that I came up with. All right. Let's suppose that you are not transformed by the gospel, right? And you're at a party. Maybe it's at a restaurant. Maybe it's at your friend's house. You're at a party. And once you get to this party, you see 20 people at the party. And all of the people you see have high status. They're smart. They're pretty. They're popular. They're everything you want to be, right? You want to be accepted by the 20 people at this party. You want to be one of them. When they take pictures, you want to be asked to be included, right? You want that girl to laugh at your jokes. You want that guy to notice you. Everything about your experience at that party is focused on yourself. Do you know what I'm saying? It's about you, how you look, whether you are accepted, how other people see you. But now suppose that at that party, by a miracle of God, you are transformed by the gospel. Now you not only believe the truths of the gospel that we just talked about in your head, but now it moves your heart. It's not just like, oh yes, Jesus died for me on the cross. It's not just up here. Now it starts to actually affect your heart. The creator of the, uni- of the entire universe with all its planets and stars and black holes died for you. So that now your destiny, no matter what else happens in life, is that you will live forever reigning and ruling with him. You have the eternal approval of God. The person who is sovereign over all history. The person who is orchestrating all of history. So now, now that you know that, not just in your head but in your heart, would you want the approval of some pimply-faced, mouth-breathing 20-year-old boy? Probably not. It's not as important. Because your security is in the love of God. You don't need some 20-year-old guy's approval. You don't need that pretty girl to laugh at your jokes, to make you, yourself feel like you're somebody. The Savior of the world shed his blood for you, and that means something now. That's what it means to be transformed by the gospel. But there's even more. This is what I think is the most beautiful part. Now you see that there aren't just 20 people at the party. The cool people, the popular people. Now you see that there are actually 40 people at the, at the party. There were 20 people that you didn't even notice because they didn't have enough status, enough popularity, enough power to merit your attention before. You didn't notice them because they had nothing to give you. Do you understand what I'm saying? There were actually 40 people at that party. You were just noticing 20. And now once you've been transformed by the gospel, your heart goes out to them. Now that you've been transformed by the gospel, your heart is already secure. You don't need approval from others. So now you can actually serve. Now you can actually talk to the people no one else notices. Because you're not looking to get anything out of the interaction. Now you're looking to give. That's what it means to be transformed by the gospel. So I know that was like a small kind of silly example. But that's what gospel transformation does. So how does this apply to evangelism? Most people have three common problems when it comes to evangelism. Three hang-ups that prevent them from evangelizing. But once you have a gospel-transformed life, those problems are resolved. So what are these three problems I'm talking about? They're the problem of pride, the problem of fear, and the problem of pessimism. So first, pride. People who believe in Christian truth, you know, intellectually, but they don't, they haven't actually been transformed by the gospel have a smugness. They have a superiority 
that hurts evangelism. Maybe you guys have seen this when people try to evangelize, right? There's, you just can just tell they think they're better than everyone else, right? But the gospel is, if you understand the gospel, really, the gospel is that you are a sinner saved by grace. It's not because you're better than anyone else that God saved you. It's sheer grace. It's a pure gift. You did nothing to deserve it or earn it. It's just because God is that good of a God that you were saved. So the gospel should take pride away. And so if you talk to a non-Christian friend, you should assume that in some ways, the non-Christian friend might be a more moral person than you. It's very possible that your Muslim friend, your Hindu friend, your atheist friend, they might be in some ways a better person than you. And that shouldn't surprise you. You wouldn't have any self-righteous expectation that you are better than them. Why? Because when you understand the gospel story, you understand you're saved by grace. No one can be saved by how good they are. No one can earn their salvation. Because no matter how good anyone is, sin is still lurking in our hearts. We need a salvation that comes from outside to purify us. We're not saved by how good we are. We're saved for love, saved by grace. No one is worse than yourself. We're all sinners before God, and that should humble you. Okay, I have to move on. Second, the gospel takes away fear. Fear of what? You know, in a certain way, if you're talking to a non-Christian about Christianity, there's a certain healthy fear that should be there. It's appropriate. You should be a little nervous, right? You, you, you should be nervous that you represent Jesus Christ well. That's a healthy fear. You should be a little nervous that you honor the gospel that you love in church. That's, that's a healthy fear. That's not what I'm talking about. Not healthy fear. What we're really afraid of is embarrassment. What we're really afraid of is hurting our reputation, right? We're afraid of being seen as a religious fanatic or even worse as a bigot, you know? We're afraid of disapproval from other people. But when you're transformed by the gospel, you're not afraid of what other people think because now your identity is rooted in Jesus Christ and not in what other people think of you. Jesus Christ, who made himself of no reputation in order to save you. That's Philippians chapter 2. When you think about Jesus and how he, he emptied himself of all glory to come down and save you by suffering and dying for you, so that now you enjoy the eternal delight and approval of God the Father because of what he has done, that should make you care a lot less about what other people think of you. So you have to think out the implications of the gospel. You have to understand the logic of the, the gospel. That's what leads to transformed life. So the gospel takes away pride. Secondly, the gospel takes away fear. Thirdly, the gospel takes away pessimism. You have a tendency, we all have this tendency, I have this tendency too, to look at people, and subconsciously or not, this happens. You have a tendency to look out at people and you start to categorize them, right? This person is so reasonable, they're so open, they're so sophisticated. I wish this person could be a Christian. But that person over there, nah. They're so close-minded. They're so biased. They're so simplistic in their thinking. They'd never be a Christian. They're a lost cause. That's what we think. They're a lost cause. They would never become Christians. What's going on here? Who are you to decide who is good material to be a Christian or not? See, if Christians are saved by grace, not personality, not temperament, not type, if they're saved by grace, then we have hope for everybody. Do you understand? You can't have pessimism. You, you must never look at a certain person and say, there's no point in me sharing the gospel with that person. She's the lost cause. That's not the way it works. We're saved by grace. 
So this is what it means to be an ambassador for Christ. We have to know the story of the gospel, and we have to be transformed by the gospel. And when we are transformed by the gospel, the pride, fear, and pessimism that prevents us from evangelizing falls away. All right, I'm noticing some closed eyes, some nodding off, so let's all stand up for a second. Yeah. Maybe, let's, let's maybe stretch. We'll continue with the message after a five-minute break. Everyone reconvene here in five minutes. Take it, you know, get some water, move around, stretch. I need you guys to stay engaged. All right, everyone, I'm going to keep going. Let's all pay attention. I'm going to keep going. I had just finished my first point. Don't worry, I only have one more point, and it's going to be a lot shorter. My first point was, this is what it means to be an ambassador for Christ. We have to know the story of God. We have to be transformed by the story of God. And when we are transformed by the story of God, the pride, fear, and pessimism that prevents us from evangelizing is taken away. Okay, that was my first point. It was a kind of a complicated point. Sorry, I'm a complicated guy. All right, second point, and I will be more brief. We have to learn, just like Paul, how to challenge cultural idols. So Paul looked out at the city of Athens, right? And he was able to identify that what the Greeks, a culture that was centered around sophisticated philosophy, what the Greeks were longing for was wisdom. They wanted to know the meaning of life, the purpose of life. But they were lost in ignorance. And only Jesus could give the Greeks true wisdom. Only Jesus could provide the Greeks with the true meaning of life. Catch that? The early Christians in Rodney Stark's book that I talked about earlier, and which you guys probably forgot about, it's called The Rise of Early Christianity. Great book. The early Christians did the same thing. They looked at Roman society, and they saw that what Rome was longing for was the good society. What Rome wanted was a powerful, beautiful civilization, a beautiful community. But what Rome built instead was a society of corruption. If you know Roman history, you know this is what happened to Rome. It fell into corruption. And only Jesus Christ could give the Romans the true community. That's how the Roman church came up. It provided Rome what it really wanted, community. And we have to do that same kind of analysis for our culture here in North America. So I have another book recommendation here. You can jot it down if you really want to dive into this topic. The Presbyterian pastor, Tim Keller, has a book called Making Sense of God, which identifies six different cultural idols from North America today. It's a great book. You should read it. I don't have time to get into it all. But in the book, Keller makes the case that one of the cultural idols of North America today, one of the supreme cultural idols of North America today, is the idol of freedom. Freedom. So just like the Greeks wanted wisdom and the Romans wanted a beautiful community, a sophisticated civilization, what Americans want is freedom. And I think if you look in your own life, like, yes, you were born to Indian parents, but many of you were born and raised here. What you want is freedom, right? Does that sound right? It, um, so Keller shows us how to engage with that idol in order to evangelize our culture. So let me state it this way. One of the unquestioned absolute truths in our culture today is I should be able to do whatever I want. Have you heard that? Do you recognize that? Does that kind of speak to you in some ways because you're American? Yeah, I should be able to do what I want. Who are you to say that I can't do what I want? That's 
the American cultural idol, freedom. Now, this isn't the way all, Christ- uh, all cultures have been in history. I hope you guys know that. In most traditional cultures, the individual is a lot less important. That's why those of us who are the children of parents from India, we feel like a tension, right? Because in traditional cultures, the individual's happiness isn't that important. The family's happiness is what's most important. The you know, community's happiness is what's so most important. The nation's happiness is what's most important. It's about the group, not the individual. The idea of individual freedom, that a single person should be able to decide for herself what's best for herself, is an idea that came from Christianity. It's an idea that has its roots in Christianity, and especially in Western Europe. Now, I think we can all agree that this idea about individual freedom has been a good thing for society. This idea that people should have a greater say over what they do when they grow up. That it shouldn't just be your parents telling you what you do, but you should have some sort of say over what you do when you grow up. You should have some sort of control over your own life. All of this has had a positive effect on society in a lot of ways. It's led to a more respectful society. It's led to a more equal society. It's led to more justice for more people. But today in American culture, we've reached a point where individual freedom has become more important than any other value in our culture, right? In our culture today, we think no one has the right to tell me that I shouldn't do what I want to do. And this is not a Christian idea. I mean, in our culture today, and I know I'm getting into a little bit of a complicated topic, but no one should tell me that I should not be dressed, uh, addressed as a woman if, even if I'm biologically male, Right? If I want to be addressed as a woman, even though I'm biologically a male, I should be addressed as a woman. I know that's a complicated topic. I don't want to get into the weeds there. But that's just one example of how freedom has become an ultimate value in our culture. So are you following so far? Freedom is good, and that's what our culture longs for. But unrestrained freedom is bad. It doesn't work. And here are five ways it doesn't work. First, it's impractical. None of us can have all the freedoms we want at the same time. I'm realizing this, but people who are even older realize this more than I do. When you get older, you have to choose. You have the freedom to eat whatever you want, or you have the freedom to live long enough to see your grandchildren. You have to choose which freedom is more important. You can't have both freedoms. You sacrifice the freedom to eat whatever you want, so that you can gain the deeper and truer freedom of living longer and of playing with your grandkids. Second, unrestrained freedom is unfair. Acting without thinking about the consequences on others is unjust. The the truth is, the older traditional cultures had something right. We're all connected, right? It's not just about you. It's about your family, it's about your friends, it's about your communities, it's about the planet. We're all interconnected, we're all affected by one another's actions. And we can see that with climate change, right? If you act to just consume whatever you want and throw it away to burn as much energy as you want, we see the effect on the planet's climate, which is warming and which harms the ability of future generations to enjoy our common world, right? Third, unrestrained freedom destroys community and relationships. A society where everyone is selfish where everyone is just concerned with me, with me getting on top, me getting what's mine, will fall apart. And I would suggest to you that one of the problems with American society today is that we've become an increasingly selfish culture. 
And what's more, absolute freedom isn't compatible with love relationships. I know this as someone who's been married since last Monday for two years, right? A good relationship always involves both people giving up some of their wants and independence and freedoms to accommodate the other person. You have to sacrifice some of your freedoms so you can gain the greater freedom of a, long, of a strong love relationship. My ideal evening is reading a book. But if I just did that all the time, I would never talk to my wife. And that's not fair. So I have to give up the freedom of being able to read whatever I want in order to have the greater freedom of a love relationship with my wife. My wife. Do you guys get that? If absolute freedom is the absolute value, then real love is impossible. Fourth, unrestrained freedom is incomplete because it doesn't tell us how we should live. We want to be free from constraints, but that begs the question, what are we free to do? What is the purpose of our freedom? The only way you can really be free is if you know what you were designed for, right? Is a fish free when it's out of water? In what sense is a fish free when it's out of water? In no sense, it's dead, right? Because a fish is designed to be in the water. If you don't know what your purpose is, if you don't know what you were created for, then how in the world would you ever be able to determine whether you are free or not? So freedom by itself is incomplete. And finally, we are never truly free anyway because all of us have subconscious goals and desires and ideas that control and drive us to do whatever we do. Whether that drive in our minds is security or status or approval or wealth or whatever. We might pretend we are free and we're making our own decisions, but really we're controlled by those drives. Do you understand? You guys following me? So all of us serve something. Listen, this is really important. All of us serve some master. All of us are controlled by some, something or someone. The question is, who or what is your master? Who do you serve? See, in the end, absolute freedom as an absolute value leads us to a dead end. In the end, it's unavoidable. It's inevitable. We all serve some master, whether it is some god or wealth or popularity or romance or the American dream. So how do we get out of this dead end? The Christian answer is that there is only one master who will not take advantage of you. There is only one master who will not exploit you, who will not use you. There's one master who will affirm you, who will cherish you, who will empower you, and who will honor you. Jesus Christ says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you relief. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke, the yoke is, you know, the burden placed on an oxen, right? So Jesus is the master, we're the, uh, the, the oxen. But Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's one master whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. The Christian answer is that you only really find freedom, real freedom, when you serve the right master. The master whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. The one who sets you free to fulfill your purpose. Jesus gives you true freedom. 
So why did I just go into that? I'm giving you an example of how to evangelize in our American culture when our cultural idol is freedom. Paul showed the Greeks, you want wisdom, but what you're finding is not wisdom, it's ignorance. You're at a dead end. Jesus gives you true wisdom. The early church said to the Romans, you want community, but what you're finding is not community, it's corruption. Jesus can give you true community. And in the same way, we have to look at American society and say, you want freedom, but what you are finding is not freedom, it's just a new slavery. Jesus can give you true freedom. So I know that was a lot. Everyone take a deep breath. I'm going to try and summarize it all again. Thanks. There you go. Evangelism is sharing the good news. News is different from an opinion, right? News is different from advice. News is about something true that has actually happened. The good news is the story of how God loved the world he created and rescued it by sending down his son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins and to rise in power to defeat sin, death, and the devil. And we are Jesus's church. We're given Jesus's own spirit to be witnesses to the ends of the earth, to all our friends and neighbors, that Jesus's story is true. This story has actually happened. And our changed lives, our transformed lives, are the evidence, they're the testimony that this story is true, that it actually happened. And how do we witness to our culture today? First, we have to be ambassadors for Christ. That means we have to know the story of the gospel to share it with other people. And second, we have to be transformed by that gospel story so we're freed from pride, fear, and pessimism. We can't just believe it in our heads. It has to transform our hearts. And second, we have to learn how to engage the idols of our culture. In our pluralist culture today, absolute freedom is an absolute value that leads American culture to a dead end. We have to show our culture how Jesus leads to true freedom. That's the job for our generation. I know you still might have a lot of questions and we have a lot of time after this, so feel free to come up and talk to me. I love talking about this stuff, I hope you can tell. I'll be hanging out around the front here, so come up to me if you wanna talk. Uh, I know we're going to go into rec time, but I'll be sticking around. Um, And I'm probably not gonna be playing basketball anyway. I'll just be here. Uh, But I do want to say, I don't have all the answers. You are the ones who are going to have to live this out if you stay Christian. You know, if you don't stay Christian, then you won't have to care. But if you stay Christian, if you stay committed to following Christ, you're the ones who are going to have to figure this out. Because you're not just going to be evangelizing your friends and neighbors. You're going to have to evangelize your children and your grandchildren in this culture. You're going to have to hand Christianity down to them. Somehow, we're living in a transition time in this world. And I want to press the seriousness of this time on all of you. It's a time of uncertainty and great challenge. But thanks be to God, this I believe with all my heart. It's what I've been praying for for three years as I've been part of the North America youth movement. And I think it's coming to fruit in CSI churches all across North America. Praise God. He has given each one of you, God has given each one of you his own spirit to be the evangelists that North America needs in this coming decade. So let's pray. Gracious Father, I commit each one of these youths to your loving care and guidance. Lord, I pray that a seed will be planted here that will be watered and grow and one day be reaped for a great harvest. 
I pray that each one of these youths bear great fruit for your kingdom. Increase our love and devotion towards you, Father, so that we would be willing to forsake the world in order to display your glory. Give us the gift of evangelism and raise up evangelists for North America from this generation. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.